the All Souls Witchy Women Podcast, Episode 11, the book-to-screen adaptation of A Discovery of Witches. Welcome to All Souls Witchy Women, a fan and definitely not official podcast where we talk all things All Souls. We're three women who met over Outlander and then jumped into the All Souls world like the time-traveling witches we wish we were. The material from a book will take on a different feel once it's adapted for the screen. And the first season of A Discovery Witches is no exception. In this podcast episode, we're going to dig into all those differences. We don't want to frame this conversation in a way where we pit the book against the show because that kind of comparison really isn't fair to either medium. Instead, we're going to take some time to talk about the differences and how we feel about them. My witchy friends, Janet and Ashley, are joining me as always, and we can't wait to dive in. Before we do, we've got a few notes. Spoiler alert, we're going to talk about all eight episodes of the first season. So if you've missed an episode or something, we're going to spoil it for you. So there. And I always like to try to do a roadmap at the beginning. Sometimes we take detours along the way, but our idea for how we're going to break this episode down is we're going to talk about some of the major changes from the book to the show. We're going to talk about additions or things that weren't really additions, but really shown through once they had a visual medium to showcase them. And then talk about things that didn't change much and then things that we were worried about, but we shouldn't have worried because hashtag Deb's got this. Because she does. Yeah. Let's get that trending. Yes. Yeah. I think we should make t-shirts. <laughs> I love that. Right? I just put that on my to-do list. Make t-shirts. Got it. Right. Okay. All right. And away we go. So we're going to start off with major changes from the book. And I love everything about this one. And it is Satu. I'm not even going to try to say Satu's last name. Anyone else want to try it? Uh, no. Nope. <laughs> no takers. <laughs> nope. Nope. Well, Satu, dear Satu. So we got to see a lot of Satu's life in the show that we didn't get to see in the book because we read the book from Diana's perspective. And we had a lot of thoughts about that, did we not, ladies? Yes, we did. I mean, one of the things that I thought about it was, I mean, when I was the first time I watched this, I was sort of initially like, wait, what? You know, why is this happening? But then I started realizing that it's important to have her backstory and understand sort of her motivations and her intent um, in order to make the show work as a TV-only concept, which I think it's easy as a book reader first to get lost in that idea that, you know, it needs to follow the book. You know, you really have to realize is they're making a TV show, and let's pretend it's like from scratch. And if it's from scratch, in that sense, you have to add some things and make some things, makes it more clear why a character would do a particular thing. Mm -hmm. And it helped to create tension between her and Gerbert. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting in the book because you see these things get thrown at Diana. And as a reader, you don't understand them any more than Diana does. You hear the congregation and you're like, okay, what's that? Or Sato just shows up and plucks you out of a garden one day and you don't know what the hell's going on. And we're all as confused as Diana is. But in the show, you see this build up and you see that they're after Diana for something. We're not really sure what it is, just as Diana's not sure. Satu is clearly very powerful. We saw that from, what, the first five minutes of the show when she set the poor hunter on fire. (laughs) Poor man. R.I.P. (laughs) R.I.P. So, right, you begin to see that their paths cross. It's probably not going to be a good thing. 
Well, also, her whole losing her power thing as a result of sort of going into those dark arts to try to open Diana while she's alive. Because it's sort of, it's how Peter Knox loses some of his power is because he tried to open up Diana's parents. I think that's a really interesting sort of extension that happened more clearly in the show and makes you understand the importance of power and how you use your power and how you recognize your power, which is part of the trip that Diana goes on her, herself. And so they bring it to light in a different way as a result of how they develop her story than what's done in the book itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where my brain is at as well. I, I really liked how, so Satu's been living in isolation in the woods, freely using this power and in sort of a dark way, obviously, right? And then we, on the flip side, we've got Diana, who's living very publicly, very ambitiously on a public stage, but keeping all of that power at bay. And so you're watching as she's evolving and she's sort of growing in her understanding and development of her powers and how she might use them and clearly using them for good, just as you're watching Satu sort of come into the public light. She joins, you know, she comes to Oxford. She sort of tries to be be seen and heard, whereas I would imagine living in the woods and was it Denmark or wherever she was, that she wasn't necessarily like hitting up the local bar and eating at the cafes <laughs> and, you know, going to yoga classes and whatnot. So now she's trying to, you know, kind of bum around with Peter Knox and be part of society with him as they're stalking Diana. And, you know, in the process of her doing this and then trying to use her magic for evil, you do see her start to lose her powers as Diana's gaining her. So I just really liked how as the episodes go further, you're watching Diana's line go up and you know uh, Satu's line almost conversely start to angle down and you're feeling yourselves more invested emotionally in each of them whether they're headed up or down yeah actually that's that's actually really interesting I hadn't thought about it that way but that's very cool and just to your point where she was you know living out in the woods by herself you know there were points where Peter Knox was like sit down or go over here she clearly was not socialized right (laughs) that that brought some like you know there were definite humorous moments in all of these episodes just because the actors are so fantastic whether they were supposed to be comedy or not just how they're interacting with each other brings it out naturally but that for sure gave me a few out loud chuckles where he's like oh my god it's like (laughs) this is my untrained puppy over here over here sit stop nibbling at my feet maybe this is all too relevant for me right now because we just got one but that is what it felt like where he's like oh god I'm trying to bring it out in public it doesn't know what to do and in the book she's not on the congregation is right I don't recall her being on the congregation in the book now Mm -hmm. maybe I'm not remembering it correctly but but I thought she was not on the congregation in the book which makes it adds another dimension to sort of how they're using her character and how they develop it in the show to help also tell the story and around the congregation and show sort of their tensions and what they're doing so that we better understand it Mm -hmm. well it definitely extends the use of her and you know using is it I don't want to mispronounce her name, but here goes. Um, Malin, Bluska, Malin, Malin, Malin. I feel really bad. I think it's Mal. I think it's Malin. Malin. Okay, sorry. Sorry, Malin, because we think you're awesome. I think using her, I mean, obviously they had written the script and that character was going to be in it as much as they were in it, but just something about her portrayal of it. You start and you're just like, I'm super scared of her and then towards the middle you're like I feel really bad for her and now like oh I want her to get oh I want her to feel these things and so I I don't know I just feel like 
if they had kept it as it was in the book, he would have lost the depth of this for sure, and that would have been like very short-sighted how they would use her as an actor, as part of the storytelling. And so I'm partial to the casting of this because it was her, and that I was just wanting to see her more, interact with more people, be mm-hmm. great, you know, have greater involvement as this story unfolds, you know, sit and watch the inner workings of this congregation because, you know, to Nikki and I's, you know, rambling back and forth about it for someone who's been living out in the woods. Now suddenly you're part of this upper echelon society where you're taken through this kind of secret veil to these meetings and sitting as part of it and considered worthy enough to have a seat at the table, mm-hmm. I think is just a really cool thing to see. I don't remember it being in the book, but I remember thinking when I was watching the show, this feels right. Right. Well, the other thing is it sets it up more. We're more vested in her as a character and understand her better for what's going to happen later on when she gets hers. Right. I mean, you know, in, in the book of life. Right. So. Hashtag spoiler. <laughs> Hashtag. Sorry, not sorry. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, but because there's more of a character for us to understand, it's it'll make it a more arresting scene when it occurs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So since we talked a little bit about the congregation anyway, why don't we move there? So, well, not let's not move to the congregation because I don't think we could find the congregation because it's invisible to mere mortals, apparently. No, you just go to platform nine, nine and three quarters. <laughs> right, just right, jump really, in. right, right, jump in. I have to say, you know, because that wasn't in the book when it first happened, I was just like, wait, did I, what did, what happened there? Right. So the major changes from the book to the screen are that we weren't privy to the inner workings of the congregation until the very end of the first book. Right. Or was it the first book? Because I got to tell you, the books are kind of mixing together in my head. Mm -hmm. But we didn't know. We didn't know as much. No. As readers, we didn't know as much about the congregation as then we did as show watchers. Right. So that one changed. And then this, we, we didn't see how they got to... The congregation headquarters. <laughs> no. In the book. And that was fairly awesome. Yeah, it was. And I liked that they kept it as a constant that they would bring back, giving us this visual segue of them on these boats in Venice going through that invisible kind of wall. I just kept envisioning the Wayne's World <laughs> dream sequence moment where they'd be like, and then all of a sudden they were there at the congregation. So, oh my God. <laughs> but I feel like it just mentally prepared me every time. I'm like, all right, here we go. We're going into right. like a whole circle of crazy, a powerful yep. crazy. Shit's going down. Yeah, shit's going down. Here we are. Get, get ready. Because, you know, you would be sort of at the Bishop House or you'd be at Oxford and then all of a sudden it was like go there I did like that they kind of gave the allure to it it made, me, it made me feel a little bit like when you go to Walt Disney World and you kind of enter those gates and you're like how long are we going to be driving till we get to the most magical happiest <laughs> place on earth but my god you have to go through the gates and do all the driving and mm-hmm. all the shuttles and everything else to get there I liked how there was no shortcutting I mean maybe here or there there was a moment where they just kept flashing to it but every time they were like we've got to get to the congregation we got in that damn boat went through the little visible wall <laughs> invisible wall and landed there but it did kind of really set the stage for what was going to happen next and that was not in the book <laughs> clearly <laughs> definitely not <laughs> no but it worked it worked as a method yeah it absolutely did we could probably talk about this in a different section too but i just want to say the set for the congregation mm-hmm. was so freaking awesome 
Yeah. That room, the way the chairs set in a circle, those keys that they all had to put together to unlock the door. <sighs> yeah. Very awesome. Yeah, I would agree. If I could just take a little Outlander moment. Am I allowed that? Are we allowed that past episode one? I can't remember. We can, ever, we can do whatever the fuck we want. Okay, good. What she said. Generally or here in this podcast. It reminded me of that phenomenal oh, set yeah, from season two. And John Gary Steele when he created that star room. I'm the, not, star chamber. the star, star chamber. chamber. Thank you. Yes, yes. And oh, it just God. felt like a cathedral. And that's what yes. I felt like when those keys opened and you're like, what's going to be behind there? What's going to be behind there? And it opened and it was as grand and sort of awe, kind of gobsmacking of a moment as that star chamber was for me. And I felt like you really sort of respected the hollowed presence of what was taking place there and just what had taken place there over the centuries and what was about to take place. It all fit. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of that Outlander moment. Yes, I totally yeah. agree. Excellent point. Yes. All right. I don't know. There's a lot we can say about this, but we can't let it go without mentioning the witch in a box. It's a witch in a box. <laughs> oh. I wish I knew the rest of First, that song. First, that, the... cut a oh. hole in the box, box. to put your witch witch's head in, in the box. box. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, and of course, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. So it's obviously some uh, pop culture reference that was not of my generation. I'm going to no, send you a YouTube is. video, Jen. I know. It's in the past decade. I will definitely, yes. Let's make sure she gets that. Mm-hmm. It's Justin Timberlake and Andy Samberg at their finest. It's coming your way. Okay. Thank you. Because you and know everybody... she just had it queued up, ready to go. <laughs> uh, of course. Of course. So and it's going to make this all sound a lot funnier than Janet. Once you've yes. seen it, then you're yes. going to be like, oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I, having watched this show a couple of times. How many? Well, I'm probably up to like eight. But Good Lord. Because I had to rewatch the whole thing to do this podcast. You know. As oh, well God. As. Was that a prerequisite? <laughs> well, it was for me. No. <laughs> we can do whatever the fuck we want. Janet already told us. <laughs> That's our next t-shirt. And mm. Also, hashtag Deb's got this. Hashtag we can do whatever the fuck we want. Anyway, I'm still not convinced by the witch of the box. I'm I mean, in that I f- camp. I feel like the Meridiana sort of side story just isn't that important. I feel like we already get through Satu what she goes through with Diana about the importance of power and we already get that Gerber is just a horrible, horrible, gross, disgusting vampire. Right. I mean, we got that. So it's not like the fact that he's held this witch in his thrall for, you know, centuries just doesn't make him any more evil in my mind. Right. So I sort of just feel like, I mean, she gives the prophecy. Right. You know, beware the wolf and the witch and the whatever, the the lion and the the blood of the lion and the, (laughs) right. Yes. Sorry. I can't quote it exactly. I don't know, but um, I just thought you were about to say the lion, the witch and the wardrobe and then we're going to change the nature of this podcast altogether. No. So anyway. She says the prophecy, but I sort of feel like we might have been able to use another way to do that. And I don't know. I, right. I, I still don't buy it. Yeah. So in summary, it was weird. It was funny. I Yeah, it was weird. It was funny. It's a witch in a box. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we, should move, we should move on. 
I did, I will just say this, a mildly formed thought of, <laughs> of sincerity. I did wonder whether they did it because who are we looking at? You know, every story needs like a true villain. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of half-villains in this story, right? Because Satu in the book was a clear one. Whereas here, we've made her more sympathetic. So yeah, you're just sort no, of like, no, true. I just feel bad for her. So to your point, Janet, I felt like Jaber was enough. The, the the whole relationship with Juliet, which I'm sure we'll get to oh, at some point, yeah. is enough mm-hmm. to make him a heinous villain in my mind. But I don't know if they thought, well, maybe that's not as like really square between the eyes for you all as need be. So let's go ahead and stick a witch in a box that he's held captive for years <laughs> to show you just how truly maniacal he is. Because we're lacking like one truly villainous character for this whole saga to rest on. Okay, and I'm going to add something else to that. Because there was a theme that I saw in the show that I didn't really see when I read the books. And that was this idea of women under the thumbs of men because oh. we saw it with Jaber and Juliet and Satu and Peter Knox and then Jaber and the witch in the box and I wonder if it's to sort of sort of amp up that theme not necessarily for the first season but to make it more satisfying when shit gets real down the road I think that's brilliant love love like yeah Love. Because the women are like, they're downtrodden, <laughs> but stuff's going to start happening real soon, right? No, I think I think that's, I, go Nikki. We get one of these moments, or more, every episode where we just go, okay, let's just go ahead but, and hit stop. Yeah, really. But you right. just get one. Cause... Right. Well, come on, but it's, it's... a good one. <laughs> no, you no, get that's a good. I like that. I like that. <sighs> I like that. It makes me like the witch in the box a little bit more. Uh, okay. All right. She then my job stay. here is done. She All can right. stay. Because I'm about to sing. I'm about to sing some hearts. Are you ready? Yep. These dreams go on and close my eyes. Every second of the night. Oh, God. I live another life. Yep. Oh, man. All right. I honestly was wondering, like, which dream song is she about to sing for us? That was good. (laughs) This podcast brings it all. Yeah, it does. Leaves nothing, nothing on the table. Okay, yeah, the spiderwebby dreams. Can we talk about those now that Nikki? Yeah. Yeah. So I get it, right? It it took a bit. I was like, what is happening? You're giving me nightmares. Like, I, oh. Yeah. There's creepy. a lot to work out there. There's a psychologist waiting for you. I can feel it. Some hypnosis, perhaps, something. Acupuncture, all the woo-woo treatments. Please, get in there. But then when you figure out that they're really trying to illustrate that she was spellbound and she was held down, and then when you can see that it ended up being this interesting, although I would say creepy, foreshadowing of us seeing the moment that mm-hmm. her father actually did do the spellbinding spell to keep her safe. You know, it all makes sense. But I I was sitting here thinking, like, I don't even know if I can crit it was weird, but I don't know if there's another way to do to kind of do it to be able to mm-hmm. show like how that works. Like how would you otherwise he'd just be kind of whispering words over her and she'd be having these nightmares that you wouldn't really know what they were about. But mm-hmm. when you can play it back and realize like this poor woman has been having these for God only knows how long where she's just felt trapped. Like mm-hmm. 
just like the heaviest blanket you can imagine just kind of wrapped around you so that you can't move and to feel that physically and imagine what it'd be like. So to do it in such a way that conjures up like this, you, I mean, you can feel it when you're watching it, like that's going to make me itch. That also makes me feel smothered. And that's exactly what that spell did to her mostly. And then when she finally breaks free of it, I just feel like there's so much visualization there that has brought these thoughts from the book that I didn't feel like I could get my brain around that I then suddenly was like, all right, I can deal with the spiders. I get it. I'm in. I get it. Now that I've seen this flashback sequence to know why we were even caring about spider webs, it worked for me. It took a while to work for me when we finally saw why, but it worked for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it took a while for me, too, and it has something to do with the fact that I have, like, I just, I hate spiders, and I'm afraid of spiders, and I had a recurring spider nightmare, like, <laughs> for much of my childhood, so maybe I'm spellbound. Yeah, that's what I got out of that. <laughs> so there's that, but where I would wake up and still see them all over my pillow and all over me. Ew! I was, yeah, it was awful. It was awful. So I was super creeped out to see the spider thing happening. And I think as a book reader was a little confused initially because I was expecting ribbons. But it helped to create more tension about it so that Diana would be more upset about like, you know, because you get spellbound if you're like somehow a terrible witch or a mm-hmm. bad person or crazy. And she references that. And it also creates more tension for sort of, you know, why M didn't say anything and why Sarah didn't feel she was trusted. Whereas the ribbon sort of picture in my head is a much more sort of well-intentioned and pleasant image of, mm-hmm. of, of helping a child. It's sort of, you know, wrapping a child in something soft and pretty and, yes, constricting, but not in the same way that sort of the spiders and the webs were. And I think it ultimately did add to the tension of what's going on, even though I remain completely creeped out, especially that scene where, like, she's lying on her back and, like, there's this bubble coming up her stomach under, you know, under the blanket. Oh, and it's just like the big, it's, you know, I just know it's like the biggest spider ever made ever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, my teenager who does not like bugs of any description could not watch those scenes. She had to close her eyes or she made me fast forward it. She just, she couldn't deal with it. (laughs) But I think, you know, that was the intent, right? This is not a pleasant thing that happened. And so we're all sort of feeling the unpleasantness of it with her. But my take on it was as a sickly child, I have what I call asthma dreams and So even sometimes today, if my asthma is in a bad place, so I wake up or I dream that I'm drowning and I'm struggling underwater, I can't catch my breath and I wake up and realize that I'm not drowning. I just can't breathe. Well, okay, that's not like it's better, right? But I just can't breathe because I'm having an asthma attack. So I take my inhaler, I go back to sleep, everything's fine. And to me, it sort of spoke to the games that our minds play on us. Because, you know, when I'm asleep, I don't know what my brain's doing, but it's like off in its own place and it makes me think I'm drowning. But it also made me think about the way we misremember things as a child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I said this on the discussion group at some point, that you grow up with a memory. And there are a couple from my childhood. I grew up with a memory that... This is the thing that happened. And only when you're in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s, you talk to somebody in your family and they go, oh, well, that's not what happened at all. And so you've lived with this version of events that you've always thought was true because you were a kid and it was scary and you were confused and you just didn't understand what was going on. But you find out later in life, it wasn't that at all. And it wasn't scary. And maybe somebody was trying to protect you. (laughs) 
while it right. was happening. And so when I thought about it through that lens as as the way we misremember things or the way our brains the the way our brains try to make things try to soothe us maybe or to change events around to get us to a place where we can accept them. It made me sort of better with that and maybe that's just way overthinking what it should be but No, I like that. And I think there's a part of me that wonders and feels as though you're doing that because you're a parent too, where it's like, you can see from the other side of it, like how a child would remember, like, you didn't let me do this, or I wasn't allowed to blah, 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 blah. And then when you become a parent and you look back, you look at that choice differently and can see, oh, you were doing it for my good. It looks malicious. It looks like you meant me harm. And maybe, you know, we could argue here that whether it did or not, But as a parent, you look back and think of those things differently because now you can see it through a different perspective to see what you would do to protect your child. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I also think, I mean, I was just thinking about this while you were talking that, you know, oftentimes what prompts us to actually change and sort of to push ourselves beyond sort of our comfort zone and to new growth and development is something that's actually scary and something Mm -hmm. we want to get away from rather than being wrapped in ribbons that are sort of soft and maybe a little comfortable and confusing and not something that we understand, but aren't something that we need to push out of in a way that is, it's a motivation. And I I, like it. Anyway. Yeah. I like that too. I like it. Yeah. Is that my Nikki moment? I think it is. I think it's your Janet moment. That are the toughest or the best for us. I like that a lot. Speaking of tough things, Juliet in the woods and Matthew, she snuck up on him. Yeah. How? Still in that fabulous Italian wardrobe, no less. <laughs> oh, yeah. girl. Yeah. I, know. I know. Why doesn't she, I guess vampires are immune to this. God love them. But if I'd done that kind of <laughs> transatlantic flight, you could just picture how long she'd been on a plane. Everything still looked fabulous. God, to be yeah, a yeah. vampire. It's true. No jet lag, no hanger over the peanut bags, nothing. But Matthew didn't notice her, and that was a weird difference. I don't understand it, because he's got the super smell, the super everything. And in the book, knew something was wrong. He called Marcus, you know, et cetera. And I think it's an anomaly that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. I just remembered a pattern in this show. The two moments where Matthew kind of falls down on his guard of her Mm -hmm. and just in general all of his heightened vampire spidey senses Hmm. is right after Mm -hmm. some really fantastic sexual moment with Diana. (laughs) Oh, Oh, you're right. Because there's that moment at Septors and then he just finally like sleeps like a baby and she takes off for her little 5K around the courtyard and gets snatched. And then we have the fabulous moment up in the attic at the um, Bishop House or wherever it is. And then this is seemingly right after that. So it's almost like it diminishes his... Much like the actual human (laughs) male, it makes their brain work slightly less. Right. They, like, fall asleep. (laughs) Or need to eat pizza. Or whatever. The point is they're not paying attention. Oh. Wow. I like it. Yes. No, I actually think that is good. Well, it's it's good a, it's a better explanation than anything else because otherwise it doesn't make sense because he's always on. Always yeah. on. I mean, he can hear her heartbeat. He can hear her blood moving, right? I mean, right. yeah. So it's obviously it's the sex. So there you go, Ashley. Or the super bundling. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> Super bundling. That's amazing. <laughs> oh my god, that's great. Alright. So let's move to things that were this is sort of a broad and ambiguous category, but we're gonna do it anyway. Things that were either absent from the book or needed a visual medium like the television show to showcase the thing. And most of this is gonna come down to sets. And I'm just going to throw them all out there and then we can talk about them. Sep Tours was beautiful and amazing. The Bodleian. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, so both of those were sets. So I don't know. Do you guys want to say anything more about those other than amazing? I mean, in the, the we already talked about the congregation, but I think that obviously yeah, will absolutely. Yeah. carry through here. Yeah, I just I think you can conjure up in your head what these would look like. And I think, again, they were beautifully done in both places, right? But it's a little harder to envision, I think, from the words in the book than some of the other things that we'll talk about later in this episode. But those two specifically, the Bodleian, if you all have not had the benefit of seeing sort of a, a behind the scenes of how they built that, worth Googling, YouTubing, or wherever mm-hmm. we can find it because it's we, impressive. We could put it in our show notes. We could yeah. put it in our show notes. So for those who haven't heard the story, they do not allow filming inside the Bodleian. So they basically had to attempt to go in there and take like a visual snapshot in their head of what it would look like and then recreate it. And they built it from scratch to match almost an exact replica. And people who have been on the set and then in the Bodleian say that you almost don't even, can't even tell the difference. It's so, so comparable. So to be able to bring that to life is just a feat of artistry that Mm -hmm. I can't even process. Well, and I think the thing, too, like, you know, Septour and the Bodleian, the Bishop House is another one, but we've all been in houses, and I think based on sort of Deb's great description, et cetera, we could all sort of have a picture in our heads of what the Bishop House might look like because we've been in houses. But if you haven't been to an old library in a university setting like the Bodleian, or if you haven't been to sort of a castle kind of setting, you know, like Septour, it's harder for you to sort of process it and come up with all the details. So I think that's where the Mm -hmm. set really brings that book part to life in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I'm so excited for Shadow of Night, right? That's all I'll say. Oh, yeah. Yes. (laughs) So, I mean, this was... So, Shiver's relationship with Juliet was very different in the show as opposed to the book. It was creepy. Creepy. Because he's a father, right? Uh, yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. what? And I'm going to give you a bath now? Hmm. And I'm going to kiss you in a way that seems so sexual. Yeah. yeah. You've been a bad, bad girl. I'm going to put you in a bath and then take you down to a dungeon. Like, what? <laughs> like, I'm so confused. Yeah. Uh, and then wish you on your way to find... Oh, just... Mm-mm. 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 Nope. All kinds of no. Yeah. yeah, I mean, other than it really does sort of highlight in an additional way his complete evil creepiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I, that came through loud and clear for me. Right. That, it almost no came louder for me with this than with the witch in a box, which I understand she has a name, but I refuse. It's witch in a box. So I like that, though, as we're watching him keep a witch in a box, Juliet is in her own. Seemingly, he's keeping a vampire in a box in some way, you know, like he is not mm-hmm. letting her out of this small circumference of his control, small radius of his control or whatever. I watched that and thought like, OK, well, it's. In, in some way, it's not as devious as, like, keeping a witch hostage in a box for centuries. And on the other hand, yes, it is. It absolutely is. 
Right. Um, no, totally. In a way no, that I... you can understand more than like having your head whacked off and being in a box and being kept in some sort of semi-dead, semi-live state for years. That's mm-hmm. sort of what she's in. Like, here I am, I'm ageless. I probably, I can be killed, but I, you know, obviously am poised to live forever, but live forever in this tortured agony that this guy is pretty much keeping me hostage or at arm's length. I mean, forget it. That's... Well, and he trained her to crave Matthew. Right. I mean, right. that was his whole thing was part of his way of controlling Matthew. And sort of, you know, the battles that they have at other points, which we'll see more of, you know, in Shadow of Night. It's it's setting it up now for sort of what the story will become more clear in Shadow of Night, where we meet Gervais again. Mm -hmm. Hashtag spoiler. Anyway. (laughs) Yep. We're going to have to go Um, back and, like, retroactively change Nikki's upfront spoiler to talk about all eight episodes and also all the books. (laughs) Yeah. Just everything ever. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we could use a palate cleanser after this Gerber talk. Ooh, nice segue. Yeah, wasn't it? It was good. That was good. <laughs> and by palate cleanser, I mean a wine note. <laughs> um, I see what you did there. So, guess what, guys? Byard is going to talk to us tonight about sangria. Yay! I know. I'm really excited about this one because we were talking about a wine that could really kind of fit what we're trying to do here to talk about adapting something from one medium to the next or bringing it to life in a different way. And so sangria really represents that because it is definitely a way to re-envision wine and adapt it to find a vibrant home in another place or another culture. So I will leave it to Bayer to explain to us how the heck that happens. This is Bayard with your wine note. We're going to be talking about adaptation, namely adapting wine for something else, like sangria. That's right. Most of you are probably thinking, no, I don't drink sangria. I did that in college. I don't need a repeat. But I have to tell you, there's some phenomenal sangria out there. Sangria really started in Spain, in the Rioja region, with Tempranillo, which we've talked about in previous weeks. But do not discount white sangria, or if you want to kick it up a notch, sparkling sangria. The biggest key with making great sangria is to have a nice balance of wine and fruit. You want to make sure that you have good acidity, you have good fruit notes, you don't have anything too dry or too sweet. And when you're making sangria, now is not the time to bring out that wine that you've been keeping in your cellar for 10, 15 years. Go for a value-priced wine when making sangria. That said, just keep it simple. Start with a great red wine. You can go Tempranillo if you want to go from Spain. If you're going to do something from the United States or from France, I would say look at something right in line with a Merlot or maybe a Syrah that would be fantastic. If you're going to do a white wine, look at doing an unoaked white wine. Not necessarily a Sauvignon Blanc that might have a lot of tropical fruit flavors that might overtake the fruit flavor, but look at an unoaked Chardonnay. You do not want anything too creamy or too buttery or too oaky. You can also look at a Chenin Blanc. That would be a fantastic white wine. Also, if you're going to be doing a sparkling, I highly recommend a domestic sparkling wine from the United States or even better, Cava. Now, for those of you that enjoy Prosecco, now is not the time to utilize Prosecco. Usually Proseccos are overly sweet and will overtake the taste of any fruit, thereby masking it, and there really would be no need for even make a sangria. Just drink the Prosecco straight. All that said, have fun with it. When you start out making your sangria, be sure not to make a full batch. Try something out in a small glass or cup first to make sure that the flavor profile is exactly what you want. I also highly recommend making multiple sangrias. If you're going to have a party that's big enough and you can make a red and a white or a red and a sparkling, that would be a great idea and a crowd pleaser for sure. Enjoy.
Thank you, Bayard, for the sangria talk. As I sit here drinking white wine with ice in it through a straw. Wow. It was a perfect sort of thing. So the next thing on our little roadmap here is to talk about things that didn't change much from the books and we love them just as much on screen. And this is, I feel like this is just gratuitous for us because there's so many things that we gushed about before the show and during the show and this just gives us another chance to gush about them now. And I don't feel bad about that. Not at all. No, not at all. Totally. (sighs) (laughs) And we can start that off with Sarah and M. Oh my god, I love them so much. (sighs) Yep. I didn't think I could love them more in the show. I love them as much or more as I did from the books, but I do. I love them. Very yeah, much. the the two actresses are Ugh. perfect. Alex Kingston and Valerie Pettiford. I mean, they're just they're perfect. End of story. So wonderful. They just bring so much emotion and heart and love and strength and oh, perfect individually and then just when you think it can't get better, they share the screen together and are so complementary in their styles and just the chemistry that they have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, ooh. Yeah, the book characters, like you said, in and of themselves were amazing. And yeah, this is one of those where, not to say anything about, you know, Matthew Good or Teresa Palmer, but this was sort of this sneaky delight moment where it just mm-hmm. turned out far better than I could have even imagined. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything spoilery. Oh, Why don't. stop now? Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I can't. It's too soon, Janet. I, I know. I know. I know. Don't make me cry. I know. But in that same vein, Isabel was just, oh my goodness, Lindsay Duncan was amazing. And if one of the things that we learned about Isabel through our conversation with Deborah Harkness was that when Deb did her vision board, when she thought about the characters, when she was writing these characters, she pinned a picture of Lindsay Duncan to her vision board 20 years ago when she was writing the books because she's always who she had in mind. And then lo and behold, Lindsay Duncan is Isabel. And for those of you who are wondering if magic is real. Oh my gosh. That's all I'm going to say. She had the picture of Lindsay Duncan on her vision board 20 years ago. And boom, here we are. Yeah. So get out your vision boards. Exactly. Dust them off. Come on, people. (laughs) Write it down. Make it happen. Oh my goodness. So cool. So cool. I mean, she embodies everything that we read about Isabel, right? She's stately and intimidating and beautiful. Hard ass. Yes. Yep. Yep. We're just gushing here. It's fine, though. Like I said, I'm not going to apologize for this. And then yeah. the there, there was the horse. I was going to say wardrobe. the wardrobe. The wardrobe, yes. too. Like, she's perfect enough on her own. And then the yes. wardrobe department got a hold of her and just made the whole character, like, and there, there's the cherry on top. Yep. It's oh like, it's stiff. It's rigid. It's beautiful. It's fitting of the dynamo matriarch of this family. It brings this, again, this kind of, this elegance, this all the words <laughs> and right. I just I was standing there like yeah of course she's not like standing on the like my mom greets me at the door she's in like her like a t-shirt and some sweatpants she's doing her mom thing mm-hmm. and I love it this woman is like in the full suit accessorized to the nines the hair in the tightest tightest updo I'm like god that's pulling her face you know what oh, I mean like yeah. it's just so and like just can't look comfortable to save her life but it fits the mm-hmm. whole thing works yeah yeah it just reminds me of some of the women that i grew up with with the hair that got styled once a week you know they went to the beauty parlor and they couldn't get it wet and it got and they set just, was it yes that's, that's the verb i love i went and had my hair set yep and so you know 
in the South, so it was very big as well. So really big hair that, you know, was like a trampoline, like very bouncy. <laughs> but, and, and these women who looked like they had never been comfortable a day in their life. Oh right? And that's, that's what Isabo reminds me of. Hair well, I agree. Trim. Well, she looked like she's carrying the weight of the world for centuries. Mm-hmm. And yes. she has been. Yep. Think of all the things that she's endured and had to strategize around and keep the family moving and the grief. She looked like she had been like, wow, you are, you've got some internal processing going on. I can tell you're keeping things in, aren't you? Yep, you're keeping yeah. them in. They need to come mm-hmm. out, but they're in there. and They look gorgeously bound up in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Which I will just add, I also think Mart is, was really well done and that she's a good foil for Isabeau which comes across well in the show you know I mean it's um it's clear in the books too but I think that's another part to that yeah I would agree I would agree you know she just Mart just shoots her a look or she's like come on (laughs) ease up on the kids (laughs) right right which I don't know they have a very similar relationship to Sarah and M I was thinking that I don't think their relationship is romantic but it's very similar in that you know (laughs) by the way I mean this doesn't really go in this section so we'll just pretend we're in the front section speaking about Mart made me think about it which is we don't have any of the like sort of Diana taking the special herbs so she doesn't get pregnant thing oh yeah as a story in the show instead they're focusing very much on sort of the species dying out and losing power and not being able to sire and demons going crazier you know and looking at it sort of from that perspective mm-hmm. there but they haven't really you know that was a whole thing in the book well, that's right. being ignored so far well wait okay spoiler um do we think because this actually i think we brought it up when we were like talking about anticipating the show and now here we are we've seen the show so do we think that they actually consummated the relationship that's about as professional as i could say it are you proud of me because i was about to be like you think they did it um or do we think they were just doing a lot of super bundling because that herb bit doesn't i didn't think uh takes place until book two no i'm not sure i don't think they have done it yet done it i don't think they've had full-on completely consummated sex yet so i agree i don't think that's happened but i thought it was when she first went to septur and that mart immediately was like i'm going to show you how to make these special herbs and you have to promise me you're going to drink this stuff every day Mm -hmm. and i'm not going to tell you why but you do it i thought it was in book one yeah i thought oh yeah yeah now that you're saying it like that yes i do recall it (laughs) And that it's in book two that Diana discovers, you know, after, what it they're, is. Do- after yeah. they're done with bundling. Right. That uh, because Matthew says to her, well, you need to go on the pill. You need to get a contraception, a contraceptive. Right. And it comes up Sarah and or M is sort of saying, hey, why are you taking these? Yeah, that's the part I remember. Anti-conception, right. you know, herbs. And Diana's like, wait, what? Yeah, that's the part I'm remembering. OK, yep. Anyway, it's nothing. Nothing about it has been set up. They're doing it differently, and I just it made me think of it when we talked about Mart. And we can just pretend that we discussed it up in the top. Okay. Yep. I like to pretend things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. And that the Bishop House. Yeah. We just. I want to live there, and that's it. And that's. Yeah. I want it. And I want it bad. Yeah. And I want all of us to be there. It would be so awesome. Yes. I think Deb wants to live there too. 
I know we've talked about this before, but I can totally understand why Deb was doing some active writing while sitting in the set of the Bishop House. It's a magical place in the book. It comes across magical on screen. And sometimes, if you've ever had the opportunity to step behind the scenes, it can steal some of the magic. But to know that Mm -hmm. she still felt it sitting there, knowing like this is a set that was hammered together to make this come to life, but to see it and feel still feel the magic, even though you've kind of gone behind the camera to know it's not, I think is telling. But can you imagine? Imagine sitting in a space that was created out of words that you wrote. No, no, not at all. (laughs) This set that you dreamed into existence with your words. Yeah. I think you couldn't help but be inspired by that. I agree. I agree. Well, thankfully, she wasn't sitting in the hole that Diana was down trying to write. Yeah. The oubliette. The oubliette, that fancy word I can never remember. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't even try that one. But I give you both three stars for trying and doing it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so there were some things that we were worried about before the show aired. Because we do that. We worry about things because we're moms and women and stuff. Um, but we shouldn't have worried because, as we said earlier, hashtag Deb's got this. So... We were really, really, really worried about magic because Deb did such a good job of describing the things that happened when Diana's magic was coming out or when other people were using magic. And we wondered how... uh... (laughs) That is staying in. I just want to be clear. I just want to be clear. (laughs) Exactly. There is not a chance in hell that cat is getting muted out of this podcast episode. That was amazing and really, really aptly placed. Yes, oh my god, really. that's that's our own version of Tabitha. That that would be Tara, and it's clearly time for dinner. Oh my god. Anyway, I don't even know what I was saying, but basically, there were things that we were worried about that we shouldn't have been, and we worried about how there would be a visual representation of the magic because it could be really, really cheesy. But yes. It kind of wasn't. No, I think it worked well. And you had some good examples. I think the fiery bow and arrow, I thought that was totally believable and well done when she did that. The way she shimmered after Dancing with Matthew, which I think was a much better way to, to do it in the show than in the book. In the book, she floats. You know, she goes up in the air. And I think that might have gotten hokey, whereas just the general shimmering of her power, I think, was a better way of handling it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. My... And then the lighting the pumpkins, the E.T. finger. So (laughs) that's how I want to light my pumpkins, in case you're wondering. That's how I want to light my candles. Yeah. That would be really handy. Yes. Yeah, the the magic at the kitchen table when she's working with with Aunt Sarah, too, I thought went off really well, too. Just in general, I think the overall category of magic was like, eee, this could go one of two ways. Yeah. Right. Well, the one I thought was a little dubious was the flying. I just think it's impossible to make it look like people are actually flying. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, the bar was set low in the 70s with Superman, right? (laughs) So it could only get better than that. Yeah. But like people's legs, they just do weird, like, you know, one leg bent. And I don't know. It just never looks real. It just doesn't. I will say I thought it was maybe the weirdest thing I had, the, the flying attempt, until I took my son to see the Aladdin remake. The live, <laughs> the live version, or not the live version, but you know what I mean, the the one that's not animated. Live action, yeah. Live action, thank you, that's what I was looking for. And yeah, no, their little flying magic carpet scene looks 
It's like straight out of your local high school drama production. I was like, really? This one's got a lot of money with Guy Ritchie behind it. So I think flying just overall is a hard one to nail. And if we can add to that category, are we allowed to? And then we can end on like a good one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We can go out on a strong note. I feel like this is that category where it's like creature powers in general might be hard to bring to life, no matter how wonderful the special effects team is. This is no disrespect to them, but Mm -hmm. this is just very specific. And these might be incidents of things that work really well in a book when you imagine them in your head. And then when they're brought to life on screen, you're like, hmm, well. And so the flying is one of those. And then I would add into that the... Any of the activities the vampires are doing, the running fast, every time it was like, he moves so much faster than everyone else, and it was like, he's here! Like, that one got me, as well as the the weird jumping out of helicopters moment, too. <laughs> There's no place to land, we'll have to jump! We'll just have to jump. If someone could please um, really tell me yeah. how they got back in the helicopter, the that's what I need that to know. But the works really well is when Matthew growls. Yes. Yeah. I will say that. Which is, I know, it's not that much of a superpower, but... I don't know, maybe it is. (laughs) But it's pretty awesome when it happens. It's just like, it's it's understated. I feel like it could have been cheesy, but that Matthew Good does the exact right amount and decibel level of it. Mm Mm-hmm. So. Maybe it is a superpower, and maybe that's how bundling starts. It does. It starts with growl. (laughs) And it ends with losing all your senses. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, right? It's like Satu, right? But from sex, right? Yeah. Oh my God. But you know, the one I think, and I think we all agree that was the best was the witch water. Oh, yeah, that was really well done. And I was worried, and you know, I think they nailed it. Yeah, I just—it was everything that it wasn't in the book, and that's Mm -hmm. not a bad thing. That's not a knock against the book. It's not a knock against the show. It was just—it was a really different representation of it. I love it that they showed the witch water falling on Matthew's windshield. Yeah, Mm because I didn't get that until actually I read Ashley's recap, (laughs) and then I laughed my ass off because he wiped away her tears. Only like. It, Ashley said something like he wiped away her tears only like not like she had hoped or something like that because right. he wiped them off with this windshield wiper with a windshield wiper <laughs> not romantic no right. gotta no. go functional functional very functional no. no but I actually thought that was a beautiful way to show like how all encompassing that was that it wasn't just localized to her and you know the three feet around her it reached out to him where he was as well so I thought that was lovely yeah, I'd agree. Oh, I feel very tired now. This was a great walk through season one. Yeah, and you, they're filming. I've... They're doing. They're filming too, so it's not going to be yeah. that that long. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, I've got a few things that will recharge you, Nikki. Okay. One, the All Souls Con. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Hashtag Nikki's going. I know. A little bit excited, just a tiny yes. bit. Nikki and our fabulous intern are going. Wink, wink. Yeah. And the second thing that would really recharge you is I have a couple of really good reviews I want to share that people were kind enough, kind enough to leave for us in iTunes. And so I'd love to, I'd love to share those with you. Is this the time? Will you let me? Here we Permission go. Permission granted. Permission granted. You have superpowers as well. <laughs> so this one is from Buzzy Diamond. 
Fuzzy Diamond. I like that. I think I've gotten that right. And it starts with Obsessed. I just found this podcast two days ago and have already binged 90% of it. LOL. I'm hoping, by the way, since this has been a bit, she's actually hit that 100 number. I'm thinking. But she continues. Yeah. I have read the entire Outlander series, including all of the novellas, 12 times. That might be Janet's count. That's Whoa. Seriously? Whoa. Wow. Now, some would say I have a problem. Okay. Then I find <laughs> this other story about witches, vampires, and other magical creatures that time walk, and I just can't stop myself. I've read that series three times. I was so excited when I found your podcast. It's so fun. I love that. Thank you Aww. so much. And I'm going to give you one more bonus. This one also made me smile a lot. This is from... <laughs> I love these iTunes usernames. This one's from Seriously Crappy, but the <laughs> the APP and Crappy is... Let's get it? Get it? Okay. okay. It's just like chatting about you, it says, which it really is. Down-to-earth ladies drinking wine, laughing, sometimes a couple of tears, but always real. I only recently heard of All Souls. I saw an ad for the TV show, binged watch the shows on Good Friday weekend, then binged the trilogy book shortly after... Since I don't have any friends or family in real life who have read or want to read it, listening to this podcast is as close as I get to having a wine and all souls night. Oh, that's so sweet. I know. Seriously, crappy, you can come and drink wine and talk all souls with us whenever you want. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I think you're seriously awesome. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to everybody who listens. And if you feel inspired to give us a review, that's lovely too. Yes. All right, ladies. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap this up? I know that from our other life in Outlander, they love to profess like the book is the book and the show is the show. And there's so much arguing around how it's done and how it's brought to life and the changes and the deviations and how they're ruining it and how they're improving it. And I can't tell you what a breath of fresh air this whole experience Mm -hmm. has been Mm -hmm. to find a fandom that clearly loves both, at least seemingly to me, but to have fallen in love with the books as deeply as I did and then find that they have brought it to life in a way that feels so perfectly fitting and genuine and authentic to the story that Deb wrote and that people are just embracing it. And it has been so Mm -hmm. refreshing and a wonderful thing to see and experience. And so I just can't wait for season two. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well said. Yes. Boom. That's it. The summary right there. Janet, you want to say anything before we go? No, that was it right there. I couldn't add anything to that because I I agree wholeheartedly. So we'll just leave it there then. All right. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us as we discuss all things All Souls. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And then if you feel inspired, just as Janet said, you'll leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to join in the conversation, find us on Twitter and Instagram at All Souls WW, on Facebook at All Souls Witch and Women Podcast and Blog, and online at AllSoulsWitchandWomen.com. See you soon.